title for my message this afternoon is A Window of Opportunity. Can you say that? A Window of Opportunity? And wherever you're viewing this from, you can just say it. Even if you're all by yourself in your room, just say, a window of opportunity. I believe that God is going to give us a window of opportunity in order to finish the work, in order to proclaim the gospel. Now, a lot has happened in the year 2020, and it's been a rough year. Uh, It's been a turbulent year, an unprecedented year. And uh, I believe that the Bible can speak into some of the challenges that our world has been facing. I believe that the Bible is not silent uh, when it comes to current events. And even though this book has been written for many, many years ago, it has the ability, because it's inspired by God, to speak directly to particular circumstances that we face, also in 2020 and 2021. And so we're going to go on a little journey in, uh, in the Bible. But before we do that, let me share a little experience that I had some years ago. It was February 2011, and I had been invited to conduct an evangelistic meeting, a prophecy seminar, in the country of my birth, which is New Zealand. That's about as far as you can get from, from Norway. And for anyone that has visited New Zealand, you've been close to heaven. It's a beautiful country. And so I'm on my way to New Zealand, and um, we are going going to preach there to um, a crowd in the city of Christchurch in the South Island. And uh, there was another evangelist by the name of David Ashrick that already started the meetings, and then he had to leave earlier, and so I was going to come and continue those meetings. Now, as I was on my way... uh, in uh, 2011, on, on, in February, uh, I didn't make it to New Zealand right away because when I landed in Sydney, Australia, I heard that there were no flights going to Christchurch. And the reason why there were no flights going to Christchurch was because an earthquake had just happened. An earthquake had struck the city of Christchurch. 200 people had lost their lives. Thousands of people were now being evacuated. Uh, the, the city, major parts of the city, and especially the center of the city, had been demolished. Now, that night, I had to stay in a hotel close by the airport, and uh, you can just imagine all things that are racing through my mind, and are we going to be able to have these meetings at all, and how is this going to go, and what's going to happen next? Well, the next day, I was able to get uh, the flight, a flight to Christchurch, and uh, as I arrived in Christchurch, we were able to meet together with some of the uh, leading people that were organizing this event. And uh, I remember very well as we were praying and discussing together how we were go- what we were going to do and how we were going to continue the work. The very auditorium that had been used was now no longer available because the civil defense was using this as a launching point of helping people in the city. And so I remember very well that I got a stack of cards in my hand and uh, they told me that these were the decision cards that people had filled out the last night and the day before the earthquake. And so here I am holding these cards of decisions that people have made. The last subject that David Ashrick had preached on was the Sabbath subject, and it had also been connected with a decision card to give your life to Jesus for the first time, to decide to follow his commandments, including the Sabbath. And so I'm perusing through these cards, and I'm reading these cards, and, and my heart is just, I, I don't know what to think, because here are people that have made decisions for Christ, but are they still in the city? What has happened to them? Where are they after the earthquake? 
Well, after some days, we were able to start uh, some of the visitation work. And so we were driving to these addresses. It was very hard to get around the city because uh, a lot of the parts of the city were now uh, no longer accessible because of the earthquake. But I remember very well coming to homes where we thought we would meet someone that had written on the decision card that they wanted to follow Christ and they weren't there. They had left the city. They had maybe uh, gone to some, you know, family members in another the part of the, of the country, or, or, or perhaps for some other reason they had, they had left. Many of the people that had been writing down on those cards that they wanted to follow Jesus, we no longer could contact. And it, it made me think that perhaps the last window of opportunity has now been given to these people. Uh, perhaps uh, we are now in a circumstance and situation that, that we won't have another opportunity to reach out to them. Well, hopefully, and, and by God's grace, of course, God can use all kinds of means to reach people in various circumstances. But it made me think how fast a situation can change. And uh, that's not just the case for 2011, an earthquake in New Zealand. And I must add to that story that God worked a miracle because we were able to continue the meetings and many of the people that had come did come back and some new people that hadn't come prior to the earthquake started to come and, you know, they just realized, like, the last thing that you expect to shake is the earth beneath your feet. And when that starts shaking, yeah, you really search for a foundation in life and, and some of the people that, are co- that came after the earthquake, they said, we just need to find something firm in life, something that we can rely on. And, and that became the word of God. And so we praise God how God can work through difficult circumstances. But it made me think that we have this window of opportunity. And if we don't use it, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And I believe that the year 2020 has also taught us this, how fast Things can change. Literally overnight, countries went into shutdown. Churches closed. Evangelistic meetings were canceled. Bible studies could no longer take place in the same way in the homes. Gatherings have taken other forms through the internet, and we praise God for that. God's word goes forth unhindered. But we can't deny that we had a window of opportunity in 2019 that we no longer had in 2020. Are you with me? And though God can work in many different ways, we see how that window of opportunity can suddenly disappear. And the question is, now that we've moved through 2020, now that we've come through 2020, Will we have another window of opportunity to spread the gospel into all the world? What's going to happen in 2021? No one can really answer that question, I believe. But time will show. But I want you to take you to some passages in the Bible that I believe are fulfilling before our very eyes. I want to take you to a passage in Scripture that I believe speaks into the very situation the world has gone through and is going through right now. And again, the title of this presentation is A Window of Opportunity. So take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Matthew. 
Go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew's in the New Testament, the first book in the New Testament. You can find that easily. Go to chapter 23. Matthew is built up in a very um, uh, beautiful way, a very structured way. Um, There are basically five large teaching blocks in the book of Matthew. We have uh, the well-known Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 to 7. Uh, Then we have the uh, Sermon of Jesus when he sent out his disciples, the the Sermon on Mission, which you find in, in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Then you have, of course, the well-known chapter 13, which is the teaching on parables. Uh, Then we have Matthew 18, which is the teaching on the church. And then the final teaching block in the book of Matthew is chapter 23 to 25, and it's really a teaching on the end times, or a a little fancy language, we call it eschatology. It means the the teaching of the end times, and Jesus is teaching the people what's going to happen as we get closer and closer to the end. And in this message this afternoon, I want us to focus on that fifth and last teaching portion in the book of Matthew. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about the end times. So Matthew chapter 23, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 37. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. If you're there, you can say amen. And I would just hear that amen through the camera, (laughs) even though I can't hear it audibly, but we have a few people here that are uh, participating. So please lean into this Bible study, follow along closely. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 37. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, and it's really the last time he is addressing them publicly. They have rejected his ministry, and Jesus is revealing to them the consequences of the rejection of him as a Messiah. And he's in the temple, and he says the following words from verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And isn't that just a beautiful picture? Jesus says, it's like, I wanted to protect you. I wanted to care for you. I wanted you to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And yet they were not willing. Verse 38, the consequence of the rejection of the Messiah, Jesus reveals very clearly in verse 38. He says, see your house is left to you desolate. And when Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate, he's talking about the temple. He is standing in the temple as he speaks these words. Verse 39, for I say to you, you shall see me here no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we just need to continue to read because many times what we do when we study the Bible is we, we, we forget that when it was written, there were no chapter divisions. And sometimes we read and then we come to the end of the chapter and we, and we think in our mind that a new chapter must mean a new subject, but that's not always the case. And here, this is just a continual unfolding of the events that are taking place. Jesus is in the temple. He has addressed the religious leaders. He's told them that their house, their temple is going to be left desolate. And the very next thing that happens in the beginning of chapter 24 is the disciples are amazed by the words that they have just heard Jesus speak to the religious leaders. 
It says, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. It's almost like they're saying, "Uh, Jesus, I think you must have got something wrong here. When you said that this house will be left desolate, uh, come on, come on, let me give you a little tour here. Look at this magnificent temple. And by the way, it was absolutely stunning. It was the pinnacle of Israel's glory. Uh, King Herod had put a lot of money, Roman money and Jewish treasury, into building up this temple for it to just look spectacular. From the outside, it was, it was a wonder of the antiquity. It was a beautiful place. And so they are showing Jesus around and saying, you've got to have something wrong here, Jesus. Certainly this house, this place, is not going to be destroyed. And then Jesus says in Matthew 24 and verse 2, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Again, Jesus predicts the destruction of the Jewish temple. Now, the disciples are amazed. They, 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 they are perplexed by Jesus' utterances here. And so they come to Jesus with a question in verse 3, a very interesting question that triggers an incredible teaching block in the book of Matthew that is so valuable for us living today. It says, now as they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, it's almost like they've prepared this question. They'll be talking amongst each other. It's like, did you see what Jesus, did you hear what he just said? We got to ask some more about this. And so when they're alone with Jesus up on the mountain, They ask him the following question in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? And when it says, when will these things be? It's a direct reference back to what Jesus has spoken regarding the destruction of the temple. When will that happen? When will these things be? And then they add another question, a second question. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the world? Which is kind of interesting because for the Jewish mind, the destruction of the temple is equated with... The the end of the world. That must be the end of the world. That must be your coming. If this part, if this house of glory is going to be destroyed, if this house of glory uh, will come to an end, well, then the world itself must come to an end. And Jesus uses this question, he utilizes this question to launch into a teaching portion that is so precious and Thank God that Matthew has recorded this. And by the way, Luke has recorded as well. We find it in Luke chapter 21, um, a synonymous passage to Matthew chapter 24. And what Jesus does is he takes the destruction of Jerusalem that he predicted would take place and the signs that will happen in the end before he comes. And he takes both of these events and he weaves them together. He weaves them so well together that you need to be a very careful student to be able to, 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 be able to differentiate whether he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or whether he's talking about the end of the world. And I believe there's a reason why he weaves these two events together because the destruction of Jerusalem is a type of the end of the world. Can you say that with me? What is it? A A type of the end of the world. By, By studying and looking at what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed, we can learn something about what the events are going to be like in the end of time before Jesus comes back. Are you with me so far? All right. Now, let's look at a couple of the signs that Jesus gives us. We're still in Matthew chapter 24. Look at the answer of Jesus to this 
Very interesting question. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the world? Jesus answers in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these, verse 8, are the beginning of sorrows. And so when we look around us, we can definitely see that these events are taking place. We can witness in our world today famines, pestilences. Well, look at just 2020, the coronavirus. We, can find, we, we see earthquakes, natural disasters. We see wars and rumors of wars, tensions between ethnicities and nations and people groups and tribes. We also see very clearly... This deception within Christianity, movements that exalt the name of Jesus but actually have nothing to do with true Christianity, that have left the foundation of biblical orthodoxy and yet are presuming to come in, 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 in a form of somewhat a Christian form but, but have really nothing to do with true Christianity. The very things that Jesus predicted are actually happening as we look at our world around us. But then there will be people that say, yeah, but these things have always been. There have always been earthquakes. There have always been pestilences and, 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 and natural disasters and such. And that's true. And the key to interpret and understand this passage is really found in verse 8. Look at it again in verse 8. And sometimes it's helpful to look at different translations. In my translation that I'm reading from, the New King James, it says, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. If you go to another translation, the NIV, it says these are the beginning or the beginnings of birth pangs. And that, that gives a little bit of an illustrative perspective to this. Now, you know, um, I have been, I've witnessed in my life two births. I have two sons, Elias and Enoch. And both times I was present when my wife was delivering the child. And, uh, well, it's quite an ordeal. Uh, for those of you that are mothers, you know exactly what it's like. I mean, what, what we see is when, when a child, when you come closer and closer to the birth of the child, the contractions become more frequent and more intense, right? Until you have the actual birth that takes place. And so when you look at these signs, earthquakes, pestilence, famines, wars, uh, deceit within Christianity, and all these things that are being mentioned, they are going to happen more frequently and more intense as we get closer and closer to the ultimate deliverance. Because this is the beautiful picture. Even though there is pain in a birth, there's a beautiful outcome. Amen? And even though there is pain as we look at the birth pangs of this world, the ultimate deliverance will come. And this is something that we can look forward to when Christ comes back. Now, look what else we um, find here in Matthew chapter 24 as Jesus continues to unfold these events that will take place. Verse 9. They will deliver you up by tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And so far, as you look at all of those signs, you see it's, it's, it's a negative 
downward spiral, right? It's just one thing happening after the other thing, and, and it's just not getting better, it's getting worse. It's like the frequency, intensity of evil is just on the rise. But then I love verse 13 and 14. Praise God for these two verses. Because in the midst of all this calamity, the Bible says, but he who endures to the end shall what? Shall be saved. And this, what? Gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. And, and, and just recently, I was, was re-studying this. It's very interesting to note that the, the ultimate sign of Matthew chapter 24, and, and listen to the language here, the ultimate sign is actually not the famine, it's not the pestilence, it's not the diseases or the natural disasters or even the false personifications of, 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 within Christianity, but it is the gospel being preached. The gospel being preached as a witness that will usher in, according to verse 14, the end of all things. The end of all things will only happen once the gospel has been preached in all the world to all people. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar to a very well-known message that we are called to proclaim in the book of Revelation? Anyone with me here? Revelation chapter... 14. In Revelation 14, we have the three angels' messages. And what does the first angel say? With a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, right? For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth. And, and this, who, who is this message? Who, who is it to go to? It's to go to all nations, kindred, tongues, and people. The everlasting gospel, the message to glory God, the message that the hour of the judgment has come is to go into all the world before the end comes. And this is where ASI, young people, old people, um, whether we are uh, running a business or whether we are running a ministry or whether we're a pastor or a Bible worker or a student, whatever we are in life, we have a calling, and our calling is to fulfill Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14. Your calling is to be part of a movement that will proclaim Jesus in all the world before he comes. And now we're going to get into a very interesting portion of this chapter. Maybe what I've said so far, you've maybe heard before, and you're like, okay, I heard that, know that, but, but I want to go a little bit closer into the story now. And I want to take a look at how the destruction of Jerusalem, what happened many, many years uh, ago, is a type of what the world is going through right now. I believe you'll be very interested to follow closely as we study the next portion of this passage. So we're in Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to continue in verse 15. And look at the interesting language that... Um, Matthew uses here. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And you know, um, my Bible, I have the words of Jesus in red which is helpful. You know, you see what, what is Jesus saying? What is Matthew writing? And it's interesting because almost all of Matthew 24, except like in the beginning with the introductory question of the disciples, the rest of the chapter is all in red 
because it's Jesus giving an explanation of the question, right? He is, uh, he is um, expounding upon the question of the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. But it's very interesting because in verse 15, Matthew puts a little comment in there. Do you see that? He says, it says, Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then Matthew just puts a little comment in there, uh, whoever reads, let him understand. <laughs> like, like, I hope that you get what Jesus is saying here. Yeah, famines, got it. Uh, pestilence, uh, got it. Um, what else? Earthquakes, got it. Uh, okay, uh, you know, false Christ, got it. But then abomination of desolation, book of Daniel. Okay, uh, what does Jesus actually mean here? Well, we don't have time right now to do uh, a big study on the abomination of desolation. It is a term that you find, obviously, in the book of Daniel. Um, and it's a term that is used to describe Rome in its two phases. Rome has two phases, pagan Rome and papal Rome. And throughout the book of Daniel, the term abomination of desolation is used both to describe the papacy or pagan Rome and then first and then papal Rome as well. But we're going to do a little bit of shortcut here. Instead of going to Daniel, we're going to go to the parallel chapter in the Gospels that also deals with the end time signs of Jesus. Because one of the other disciples, later, Luke, he wasn't one of the twelve, but later he recorded about this, he describes it a little bit more clear, so to say. So go in your Bibles, keep your finger in Matthew 24, as we'll come back there, and just flip over to Luke chapter 21. Luke, which chapter are we going to? 21. Go to Luke chapter 21, and let's read verses 20 and 21. Now, Luke 21 is describing the same event as Matthew 24, and yet Luke writes it this way. Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 20, he writes, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. Verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So what is being described here in Matthew 24, verse 15 and 16, is being further explained by Luke in chapter 21. And Luke says, it's the event when the armies of Rome surround the city of Jerusalem. Now remember, Jesus, as we read in Matthew chapter 23, predicted that the house would be left desolate. The temple would be destroyed. He says, you see all these buildings in the beginning of Matthew 24? He says, not one stone will be left upon the other. Jesus predicted with very clear predictions the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we need to go a little bit into the history here in order to find out how this exactly took place. There was a man by the name of Josephus. Maybe you've heard about Josephus, a very um, known first century Jewish historian. And he captures the details of the attack on Jerusalem and how it happened. It was in 66 AD that the Roman general, Cestius Gallus, marched with 66,000 of his men from Syria to Jerusalem and he, he uh, surrounded the city. Now, Something interesting took place uh, because eventually they were able to penetrate part of the city, but not all of the city. 
not the entire city, the northwest corner, and Cestius, he couldn't get to the Temple Mount. And in order to really conquer Jerusalem, you really needed to get to the Temple Mount, and he didn't manage that. And then something mysterious took place. Nine days later, Cestius suddenly pulls his troops away and away from the siege, and he marches them to the coast. And this is known as the mystery military move because no one really knows why. He had just surrounded the city. He was actually able to get into part of the city, and then he just suddenly pulls his army back. Well, there were Jews in the city called zealots. Maybe you've heard that term before. They were fighting for independence, and uh, they were very fierce, and they hated the Romans. And so when the Romans left, they pursued them. And there was a battle that erupted, and uh, the zealots actually uh, didn't have a lot of casualties, and, and Rome lost a lot of their soldiers in that battle that happened. Now, in the meantime, the Christians that were in the city, in Jerusalem saw this as a sign to leave the city. Because now the Romans were gone, the Roman soldiers were gone, the zealots were gone, and prior to that time, they weren't even able to get out of the city because the zealots were keeping them there. And so now, with Rome gone and the zealots gone, they thought, okay, this is our, listen very carefully, window of opportunity. This is our window of opportunity. Now, it's, it's, we're not going to get another opportunity. We need to get out of the city right now. They were reminded of the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Jesus said there, let's go back to it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And by the way, the holy place was considered the, the area around Jerusalem. So you see the abomination of desolation, Rome, in the holy place, outside of the walls of Jerusalem. When you see that, verse 16, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Which, by the way, doesn't really make sense. The, 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 the words of Jesus don't make sense if it were not for the Roman army disappearing for a window of opportunity. You know, if you read that, you're like, okay, Jesus, I see the army around. Now it's time to leave. How do I do that? Can you give me a little bit more explanation? Historically, God interfered here, intervened here, and allowed the situation to unfold in such a way that the Christians in the city had the opportunity to leave. They were reminded of the words of Jesus, and they left. And every single Christian in Jerusalem was saved. They left. This is um, an interesting history. And um, it wasn't many years later, four years later, in AD 70, that Rome returned. Because Rome doesn't let things like that just happen. Historically, we know Rome is fearful. And so they don't let such things happen. And so four years later, there's a new attack on the city. This time, it is Titus, which later became the emperor, uh, that led his uh, Roman um, soldiers. And they besieged the city of Jerusalem for five months, from April to August. And eventually, the city was penetrated, and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It was put on fire, and there was not one stone left upon another. The prediction of Jesus came to pass. Not one Christian perished in the attack, though. They had all left. Now, in the great book, which I always love to, you know, remind people to read, uh, and if you haven't read it, you need to read this book, and that is The Great Controversy. 
If you haven't read the book Great Controversy, make it a priority in 2021, amen? And if you have read it, but it's some years ago, make it a priority to reread it. The book, The Great Controversy, the first chapter. Does anyone know the title of the first chapter? The Destruction of Jerusalem. This is how, the, the, when, when Ellen White is going to pen down this incredible story, this incredible narrative of Christianity from the first century all the way to the second coming of Jesus and into eternity, when she's going to portray this whole story, she begins with the destruction of Jerusalem. She begins right there where Jesus began in his final teaching block of the book of Matthew, the destruction of Jerusalem, ushering in the end times and the things that are going to happen as we get closer and closer to the end. And what happened there in 70 AD is a type of what is going to happen in the world before Jesus comes. Let me read to you here from the book Great Controversy and the first chapter. Great Controversy, chapter 1, The Destruction of Jerusalem, page 88. Listen to what she says. Not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Christ had given his disciples warning, and all who believed his words watched for the promised sign. What did they do? They watched. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, said Jesus, then you know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart. She's quoting from Luke chapter 21. After the Romans under Cestius had surrounded the city, they unexpectedly abandoned the siege when everything seemed favorable for an immediate attack. Again, a mystery military move. The, the besieged, despairing of successful resistance, were on the point of surrender when the Roman general withdrew his forces without the least apparent reason. But, listen to this, I love this part, but God's merciful providence was directing the events for the good of his own people. The promised sign had been given to the waiting Christians. And now, listen to this, and now an opportunity was afforded for all who would, who would to obey the Savior's warning. Events were so overruled that neither Jews nor Romans should hinder the flight of the Christians. Powerful. Can you just imagine that heaven is mobilized to make this historic event take place? They are besieged the city. There's no reason for them to leave. They've already penetrated part of the city. There's absolutely no reason to withdraw. And suddenly they all withdraw. Isn't it good to know in the midst of an uncertain world where there are crazy people in the top uh, running countries to know that God in the end overrules all affairs? Amen. He sets up kings and he brings them down. He is in control of this circumstance. And he knows what is needed for his people. So he allows them to withdraw for a period. And in that period, the Christians are reminded of the words of Jesus and they make their way out of the city as fast as they can. She goes on to write here in the chapter, Upon the retreat of Cestius, the Jews, slaying from Jerusalem, pursued after his retiring army. These were the zealots. And while both forces were thus fully engaged, the Christians had an opportunity to leave the city. At this time, the country also had been cleared of enemies who might have endeavored to intercept them. At the time of the siege, the Jews were assembled at Jerusalem to, make, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And thus the Christians throughout the land were able to make their escape unmolested, 
Without delay, they fled to a place of safety, the city of Pella in the land of Perea beyond Jordan. I just love how in this entire historic account, Jesus and God are present to orchestrate the affairs in favor for his people. And if God orchestrates the affairs in favor of his people with the, while there is a destruction going on in the land, can't he also work out things favorable for his people in the midst of a pandemic? If God can work miraculously for his people when there's a destruction that is facing them on the horizon, how much more can he give and grant a window of opportunity for his movement in the midst of an uncertain and broken world? I believe that the parallels here are very important for us to study. Could there be a parallel here with what the world is going through right now? Isn't it interesting to note that Jerusalem was on lockdown? They couldn't go anywhere. They were locked down in 66 AD. There was no opportunity for them to flee. The Roman uh, soldiers were all around the city. And this is a parallel that Jesus gives. This is what it will be like in the end of time. Well, we have seen in the year 2020 that not only is there being a city on lockdown, the world has been on lockdown. Are you with me? The world hasn't been able to go anywhere. And the question is, what do we do during the lockdown? Well, the Christians in the city during the lockdown, they remembered the words of Jesus. They remembered the utterances and promises of Jesus. And I can, I can imagine that, that they, 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 they recalled these promises to one another. They encouraged one another with what Jesus had spoken and that there was hope despite of the dark circumstances that they found themselves in. And the question is, what are we doing in the midst of our lockdown? Are we studying the words of Jesus? Are we getting encouragement from the Bible? Are we getting strength in order to be enduring at such times as this? It's interesting because um, the historic event unfolded such that there was just a window of opportunity for the Christians to flee the city. And I'm wondering if there's going to be a window of opportunity in the end of time for us to get the gospel to all the world. Because you know what? We can't really finish the work with the circumstances that the world is going through right now. Have you thought about that? I mean, in order for us to really spread the gospel into all the world, that can't really, it's not just going to happen through the internet. You know, we're going to have to see real people reaching real people physically and engaging them with the scriptures and leading them into a relationship with Christ. In other words, just like the lockdown was lifted for a moment on the city of Jerusalem, could it be that the lockdown in this world is going to be lifted for a moment for God's people to be mobilized for the final window of opportunity to finish the work of spreading the gospel? Now, I'm not making any predictions here, so don't get me wrong. And there's been enough conspiracy theories in 2020 already, so I'm not going to add any. But just catch what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say, there must be a parallel with what we saw happen in 70 AD and with what our world is going through now. I'm not making any time predictions here. The only thing I'm saying is, could it be that just like they had a window of opportunity, so we will be given a last window of opportunity? And the question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? You know, the Bible tells us that the gospel must be preached in all the world as a witness before the end comes. What will that actually look like practically? 
Well, I'm glad we have a prophet that can kind of um, describe what that looks like. And listen to this. This is taken from another great book to read. If you want a, a, a list of books, I can give you a list of books for 2021. This is another one. Evangelism. Okay, read the book Evangelism. In page 699, Listen to what she says about the the vision of how we can complete the work of spreading the gospel. And I believe that that this vision that she had, that is portrayed there in in this beautiful language, is something that needs to be fulfilled in this final window of opportunity that we will be granted. Listen to what it says. I saw jets of light shining from cities and villages. And from the high places and the low places of the earth, God's word was obeyed. And as a result, there were memorials for him in every city and village. Every city and village. There's still a work to be done, friends. His truth was proclaimed throughout the world. There are still many people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus. His truth will be proclaimed throughout the world, she says, hundreds and thousands. Listen to this, hundreds and thousands, not just one in a congregation there and two in a little church over there. No, hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. Hearts were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit, and a spirit of genuine conversion was manifest. On every side, doors were thrown open to the proclamation of the truth. North Korea still needs to hear the gospel, my friends. The world seemed to be lighted with the heavenly influence. This is like a description of Revelation chapter 18. Like the earth will be lighted up with the glory of God. Has this happened? As what I just read, are you going like, yeah, that's the church I belong to. Anyone here belong to that church? I I would like to change membership in that case because I haven't seen this yet with the church. This is still something that lies in the future. And in order for this to happen, there cannot be a global lockdown. It's impossible to have a global lockdown when people are going from home to home and they're opening the scriptures by hundreds and thousands in every city and village in the highways and the byways of this earth. What I'm saying is that based on this inspirative vision that was given by God, we are going to have another window, a window of opportunity. It's not yet over. It's not yet over. The lockdown is at one point, I believe, going to lift in order for this final proclamation to happen. But could it be that that will be our final opportunity? I don't want to speculate, but I believe that we are living, to use our theme, in time that is overdue. (laughs) Amen? Time is overdue. And I believe that we have a final window of opportunity to proclaim the gospel into all the world. Another place, Alan White writes this in Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 463. She says, The work which the church has failed to do in time of peace and prosperity, she will have to do in a terrible crisis under the most discouraging and forbidding circumstances. Now, we can already somewhat relate to that. 2019 was easier than 2020. As an evangelist, I traveled in 2019. I proclaimed to audiences in different parts of the world. In 2020, I was locked down to my Zoom. Now, God can work unhindered, but obviously there were opportunities in 2019 that there were no longer in 2020. As a matter of fact, I had an evangelistic series in 2019 in Sutherland, in uh, Oregon, the United States of America. If I had done it some months later, it wouldn't have been possible. I wouldn't have been able to be there. I wouldn't have been able to have those meetings. 
As a matter of fact, in 2020, that city where I had the meetings almost was burnt down. There was massive fires in Oregon. The fires came all the way up to the borders of that city. Sometimes I don't think we are aware enough of the opportunities that lie before us before they are gone. How fast can things change? We've seen it again and again in 2020. But I believe that the world will receive another window of opportunity to hear the gospel. The question is, will the church be ready to give them that message? And that really has to do with what we do in this time of lockdown. How do we, are we utilizing our time in order to be ready for that final window of opportunity? Are we using our time wisely to prepare to give that final call? And, you know, in this teaching block in Matthew, Jesus continues in chapter 25 to give us two parables to show us how we can prepare to give that final call to the world. It's very interesting. He gives us the signs in Matthew 24. He links it with the destruction of Jerusalem and what things will be like in the end of the world. And then he goes on in chapter 25 to give us two parables. This is how you prepare. This is what you do in order to be ready for Jesus to come and prepare others to be ready. So in the, in, the, in the couple of minutes that I have left, let's real quickly just look at these two parables because I believe they are important for us today. They're important for the church. They're important for us individually. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1, look at what the Bible says. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed and they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. In the context of these final events, in the context of this final opportunity for the church, Jesus gives us this parable about virgins that are sleeping. They are waiting for a wedding. They're waiting for the bridegroom. Who is the bridegroom? Jesus. Amen. These virgins are, are, they are a picture of the church. They are sleeping, the Bible tells us, the parable tells us. And, you know, it's interesting because when you read the Gospels and you read the Bible, you find that often, unfortunately, God's people are sleeping at the most critical periods of time. You know, you have these three disciples, Peter, uh, James, Peter, and Jacob, uh, James, Peter, and John. And uh, they are often, like, selected from among the other 12 to, to witness some important uh, moments in the life of Jesus. There's, there's this moment where Jesus invites them on the top of a mountain, and, and he's going to transfigure before them, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus appears in all his glory before him. The Bible tells us that they are asleep when it happens. And then they wake up. And another moment, the same disciples, the same three disciples are invited by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with him just prior to his uh, betrayal. 
just prior to his captivity. And again, they are sleeping. You know, we have these moments in Scripture where the God's people are asleep at the most critical time. You know, you think of in the Old Testament about the prophet Jonah. Remember the prophet Jonah? He had a task to preach to Nineveh. And then he, he, goes, he travels in the opposite direction. And on the ship, what does he do? He's asleep in the midst of the storm. And sometimes when you look at that story, it's such an illustration of our world today because when Jonah is at sleep in the bottom of that boat, in the bottom of the ship, at the same time, there are people that are struggling through the storm and that have, that have questions. What is happening? And yet God's prophet is asleep. Could it be in the midst of a world that is going through a storm right now that the world has questions that the church is not answering? Could it be that people have questions, why is this happening in God's church unfortunately, many times is vast asleep. And that's why we have this message in, in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 11 and 12, and it says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. I believe that Jesus is speaking to us through the parable and asking us to awake, to be spiritually alert. What does it mean to be awake? It means to be in the Word. It needs to be in uh, ministry, actively sharing your faith with those around you, seeking to encourage your brothers and sisters that are going through just as many trials and tribulations and, and difficulties as you are. Sometimes we forget that. To be there for one another. And then when five of them do awake, the Bible tells us, or when they all awake, five of them need to go and buy some more oil. But in the meantime, the wedding has come and, 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 and the, the five that do have enough oil, they go in to meet the bridegroom. This, of course, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to have a double portion of God's Spirit so that we can make it through these final moments of earth's history. There's more we could say about that, but I just want to quickly look at the last parable before we close. Look at the parable of the talents. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. He was about himself to travel to a far country. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I've gone and prepared a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's John 14. So Jesus himself was going to go to a far country, and he's here in the parable talking about a man that went to a far country, but he would come back. But while he was gone in that far country, a responsibility was given to the servants. Verse 15, he gives to one servant five talents, to another two, and to another one each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Now, the whole parable is about what they're going to do with the talents while the master is gone. And we learn how the one that has the five talents, he traded them, and, and he increases his number with another five talents. And the one that had received the two talents trades with the talents and increases it to a number of four talents. But the one that has just one talent... He goes and he digs a hole in the earth and he puts his talent in there and, and it says that he's afraid. And it's interesting because when you study parables, there are oftentimes, you know, correspondence to, you know, God is revealed in a parable, we are revealed in a parable, we can see how our relationship to God takes place and, and, and parables have, have teachings like that, but you also have to be a little bit careful when you study parables because not all comparisons can be made that way because obviously... 
even though in the parable, in one aspect, the Lord that is going away is a picture of Jesus, on the other side, a motivation to bury a talent shouldn't be based on fear. We shouldn't be based on fear what we do with our talents. We should be encouraged to produce more talents for God, to allow God to produce talents in us, not because we fear him, but because we love him. Amen? And, of course, when you compare this with the rest of Scripture, you see how Jesus was always motivating his disciples. He was always encouraging his disciples to, uh, to bring the best out of them. It's so beautiful because I believe that we have a calling as a church today to be able to bring the best out of each other, to be able to encourage one another to develop our abilities and talents and gifts and resources to make God great and to proclaim the message before he comes. And so it's, it's, it's a message, especially to those of us that feel that we just have one talent. It's God saying, don't bury that talent. I gave it to you. It's mine. And I can develop that talent in you. You can use that to my glory. You can use this window of opportunity before I come back to bring many people to a knowledge of the glory of God. And that's my appeal to you today. As we come to the end of this message, my appeal is very simple. We have a window of opportunity before us. Amen? And the question is, what are we going to do with that window of opportunity? Are we going to bury the talent? Or are we going to increase it and allow God to use us for his glory? Are we going to sleep? Or are we going to be awake? Are we going to have a double portion of the spirit? I pray so. I pray that as the lockdown lifts upon this world that we will use all of our energy, all of our time, all of our resources to bring the message of hope to the world. Amen? That we use this window of opportunity to proclaim the message, the gospel, as a witness unto all nations, and then the end will come. And this is not just, you know, we, it, this doesn't just work that we just pep ourselves up and we say, yeah, you can do it, and a kind of a motivational speech to go. The motivation is not our strength. The motivation is his love. Amen? When we see the love of God and when we realize what the gospel has done for us, that should enable us and encourage us and inspire us to go forward. What he has done and what he wants to do in us. How many of you want to say this afternoon, I want to be part of those that are described in the, in, in the, in, in the parable that are awake. Amen? I want to be those virgins that have a double portion of the spirit. Amen? And I want to use my talents for God. I pray that that is your decision, whether you're here or those that are watching online. I pray that we may use this window of opportunity to bring glory to God and that we may soon see him come in the clouds and we can see him face to face. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your goodness. We want to thank you for the window of opportunity that you've given or that you will give and are giving to us as a people. Help us to use it to your glory. We praise and thank you for the teaching in Matthew and the reminder of what has happened in the past and what we can expect in the future. And Lord, I thank you for those parables and may, those, may they be parables that unfold in our lives where we can be among those that are awake when you come that we may use our talents, Lord, for your glory. We thank you for all that you have done and are doing. Thank you that you are the treasure and that you are of inestimable value for us. 
We thank you for all those that have been part of this ASI. Pray for those that have been making decisions and commitments to you throughout this time that we've had together. May you confirm those decisions, Lord. And may you guide with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.